is the curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Joel Levy was one of the first pioneers of mindfulness training back in the 70s. Along with his partner, Michelle, they worked with Google and NASA and co-designed a secret Jedi warrior program for the US elite special forces. In this conversation, we touch on his thoughts on how to be curious in the face of suffering, why he chose to embark on a year of silence with his partner, Michelle, and he goes into some advice that he received from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So I'm here in Brighton with Joel Levy, and I don't really know where to begin uh, or how to introduce you other than in my mind as kind of a genuine uh, wise elder, I think. Um, and I know that you were pioneers of mindfulness and mind fitness training back in the 70s. And I know that you've worked with Google and NASA and elite army forces. Um, but I feel like there's this, there's this kind of spark in your eyes and this kind of radiance and this presence that almost goes beyond what I think a bio can really capture. Um, but before we dive into that, there's a question that I always begin these conversations with, and that is, were you, do you feel like you were curious as a child? And if so, what were you curious about? Mm. Yes, I was curious as a child. And it's the kind of curiosity that comes from seeing a lot of suffering mm. within my family, mostly physical and emotional suffering, I think. Um, mm. A lot of health challenges, um, a lot of um, just emotional overwhelm. Uh, and within me, it, it made me very curious, how can I help? Mm. Yeah, how can I be in the midst of the circumstances or with people that I love in a way that that might, in some way or another, um, be helpful, might help to reduce suffering. And I was also very curious um, about the deeper dimensions of our humanity. My grandfather every morning, I grew up with my grandparents and my mother, and my grandfather every morning would pull out his prayer books and log on to the vastness and, uh, <laughs> with great sincerity yeah, and wow. really never ever talking about it so much but it was just really clear that, that he would take time every morning and every night mm. to just commune with the mystery mm. in his own kind of very beautiful very simple kind of way and and i was always welcome to be in the space and kind mm. of putter around it wasn't it wasn't like go away kid i'm meditating always really welcome into that space so he kind of set a rhythm in terms of life hmm. but then i was also really curious you know my mom when i was six years old had encephalitis and was fully paralyzed in a coma for three weeks and then came out fully paralyzed and and through just arduous rehab you know learn to walk again and move her limbs again and went on to live a very full and vital life helping many victimized young people you know find their strength and mm. their power and uh 
I was curious how she did that. Hmm. You know, it's just how she kind of resurrected herself out of the ashes. You know, it was hmm. to a point at one point when she was uh, paralyzed where a well-meaning physician had offered to cut her spinal cord so she um, wouldn't have to be uncomfortable sitting in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And she and the family decided to give it some more time. And hmm. a year later, she walked up to the physician at a social function and asked him to dance. Wow. And my grandma, oh my God. My grandma used to have migraine headaches and backaches and have to go in for monthly cortisone shots to manage the pain. It was just physical wreck. And she started doing biofeedback back in you know, the 60s. And I'd go into the doctor's office with her and watch her get hooked up to these machines that mm. would feed back to her stress and tension levels. And mm -hmm. Grandma became a yogi, you know, <laughs> back in the 60s, you know, with just this incredible psychophysical control. And mm. she'd wake up some mornings and say, yeah, I woke up with a cold this morning. I stayed in bed for 10 minutes and got rid of it. And, oh, yeah, I had a headache coming on. I just did my exercises and turned it off, you know. So mm. I kind of grew up with this implicit kind of curiosity of what are we capable of and who are human beings? And clearly my family was operating in a range of mm. inquiry and endeavor and mastery to some degree that was kind of extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I walked into my uh, first high school class, first day of, of high school, I guess you'd call it college. Uh, we just say school. Yeah. School, yeah, whatever. When I was 15, and my English teacher sitting cross-legged on her desk, burning incense, talking <laughs> about meditation. <laughs> Something in my 15-year-old kind of ancient brain said, tell me everything you know. And it's, you know, the, it's the 60s and the yeah. stupid fascist Vietnam War is, is raging and kids my age, if they, uh, when they graduate from high school, if they didn't go straight to university, would go into the, the military. They were, there was a draft going on there. So there's this mm -hmm. massive social movement. Mm -hmm. And the teachers and the, and the parents in our community were just on fire with the sense of wake up, kids. Mm. Wake up. You know, this is really time to take to the streets and get your wits about you. And just mm. so meditation and psychedelics and, and social gatherings and deep inquiries late into the night, and, you know, copious amounts of coffee you know, <laughs> it's just it was a time of just massive inquiry about mm. how can we live and how can we um, change the world in which we live you know for the better mm. with all the you know just insane wonderful visionary paisley idealism and visionary impulse of the 60s you know? so it was a colorful time to come of age so yeah wow i'm i'm really intrigued that you that you said that you felt like suffering was maybe the, the birth of some of your curiosity because for a lot of people suffering is what gets people to shut down and it's what yeah. it almost kind of um it, it kills off that curiosity sometimes and particularly as people get older and kind of go from being in their teenagers to their 20s that sense of curiosity really um it just kind of shrivels and often fades away so how, like how do you think you were able to be curious in the face of that suffering and not let it overwhelm you yeah i think suffering also has the potential to just crack us open yeah 
And I think even that global scale right now, you know, we're in the midst of this massive time of the great unraveling mm -hmm. where so many in the institutions, our financial institutions, our government, our, our religious organizations are just disintegrating, you know, before our very eyes mm -hmm. and are revealing their frailties and their unsustainability and kind of some of the the misconceptions upon which they're based mm -hmm. so i think at a personal level and a social level that suffering can just shut us down if we go into overwhelm or we go into empathic distress of just just you know like being deer in the headlights where we just freeze mm -hmm. but it can also just so crack us open and i think in my case you know just having these incredible role models my mom my mm -hmm. grandmother my grandfather my high school teachers, these parents that I, I was yeah. around, my 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 brothers and sisters um, in high school and in university, and yeah, you know, I've also I've always been so massively blessed to have really inspiring older brothers and sisters, huh. and and even friends and young friends, you know, even now, you sure. know, it's just I feel like there's so much co-mentoring going on in my life where. Sure where we're inspiring each other across generations. Mm. So I think, you know, just, just the in the face of the suffering, I think if we have inspiring role models mm. and mentors um, that are kind of icons and beacons and supports, especially when we have access to them, you know, and we can just go crash on their couch and stay up into the wee hours, <laughs> the morning or the night, and yeah. just, you know, just, just sort it all out with them, you know, and yeah. just hear their stories and, and, um, and just see how they walk through the world. You know, it's just for me, I've had hundreds of amazing teachers from the, mm. Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, just, just these incredible, you know, pioneers in mind science research and contemplative science, you know, it's mm. just having been massively curious and tenacious enough to just, you know, knock on people's doors or, you know, just, you know, show up and say, could we have a conversation or could right. I come visit your lab? I, I remember I called, um, uh, Herbert, the guy who wrote Dune. Yep. Yep. Uh, I forget his. Yeah. Anyway, I was hitchhiking through Port Townsend and I, and I remembered that he, uh, Frank Herbert, sure. I was hitchhiking through Port Townsend on my way back from camping on the Olympic Peninsula. And I thought, Oh, I'm standing at this intersection. Frank Herbert run, lives around here. I went to a phone booth, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> found his number, called him up and said, I was so blown away by Dune, but also by um, this other book that he'd written on consciousness. Yeah, sure. Cause I'm, I'm hitchhiking through. Could I come visit you? And he said, sure, come on over. Wow. <coughs> so I found my way over to his house and, um, had dinner with him, crashed on his couch and hitchhiked out the next morning. You know, it was that kind of tenacity to just say, Hey, um, can we have a conversation? Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. It's, that's so, so powerful. And how did that lead you to, because <clears throat> I know that you've, um, you've created this Jedi mind training or just <laughs> um, Jedi warrior workshop. Yeah. And 
how, how did you go from being this kind of curious, tenacious <clears throat> teenager and what was the process towards working with people like NASA and yeah, in the army? You know, when I got to the university, I didn't know whether the, the, a sensible path was through philosophy or through mm. medicine or through poetry. And so I just sort of mm. spent four or five you know, semesters at university exploring. And after driving a lot of psychology, uh, teaching assistants just nuts with these, you know, like deep mystical questions that they were clueless about. Finally, one of them said, you know, you should go talk to Dr. Arneson. Mm -hmm. He might have some clue what you're talking about. So I went and knocked on Bill Arneson's door and, and he was running the consciousness research laboratory at university of Washington in 1972. And Within about 30 seconds, I think we both realized that this was a significant connection. I went on to do my uh, undergraduate and big chunk of my graduate work working with Bill studying consciousness and extraordinary human potential. Mm. And needless to say, the uh, early 70s was a colorful time <laughs> study, studying consciousness. And there, there were many uh, sure. subjects who were willing to uh, come and bring their... Uh, altered states into the laboratory and you know let us uh glue sensors to their skulls and go what's going on in there and can i have some too and and uh fascinating time but then bill cracked it open and, and got me invited into some invitational conferences and circles of people doing research and like tremendously um, extraordinary human potential, psychic phenomena, um, people doing research in psychedelics back in the 60s and 70s, you know, mm -hmm. some of the real pioneers who, mm -hmm. who we revere as, as just, you know, courageous, uh, inspired souls. And uh, so I wandered into that circle as, as a, you know, like young, bright, turned on 22 year old going, teach me everything you know, you know, and, so the consciousness research then gave rise to um, to opportunities to do clinical work. And I ran uh, biofeedback and stress management programs in large medical centers, seeing how much totally unnecessary suffering there is in our world. How many people are just overwhelmed by circumstances and accumulate stress that debilitates them in various kinds of ways. And when people learn that they don't need to accumulate stress, that they can actually experience stress in healthy ways that, you know, allow them to grow and develop and then they can release that stress without it accumulating, then so many of the stress-related conditions resolve. Mm. And then um, through the success at the medical center, I started having open meditation sessions every week for the staff. Mm -hmm. And this is back in the days when nobody was talking about mindfulness. You know, nobody had heard of mindfulness-based stress reduction. So this John, is kind of the mid-70s? Mid this is back, yeah, this is the late 70s. Yeah. And, and it turned out that I started <clears throat> um, our program at group health medical center in seattle the same year that john cabotson started his program at umass interesting and but it was like six or seven years until we heard of each other <laughs> so yeah west wow. coast east coast it was time the impulse arose we were both kind of doing it but you know through working with the staff at the medical center 
then some of my supervisors and the psychiatrists that I were, was working with said, you know, we could do a lot more good maybe just sending you out to work with with departments in the medical center or out into the community to work with um, overwhelmed teams at Boeing or the local banks in the Seattle area. And so they started to send me out to do corporate work mm. and organizational work and try and uh, build more healthy, high-performing, um, capable individuals and leaders within organizations build healthier cultures in organizations that were previously very toxic and overwhelmed. Hmm. And through that work, then um, things kind of escalated and, and some friends and I got together and Michelle, my beloved partner, and, and about seven visionary young multidisciplinary mm. folks got together and started this training consulting firm that grew from seven visionary people wanting to change the consciousness of leaders around the world to build a better world. Mm. Um, and then that organization grew to be about 70 or 80 people deployed around the world doing amazing work. We were the hottest little boat boutique um, consulting firm on the planet at that, that point with people kind of pounding on the doors saying, mm. can I come work with you guys? Mm. It's awesome. But then that led to uh, an invitation um, from uh, colleagues that were working with the Delta Force at the Pentagon. Um, taking the, the wisdom of a cult classic called Evolutionary Tactics a manual for the first Earth Battalion that had been created by our friend Jim Channon, who was one of the founders of this consulting group with us. And Evolutionary Tactics was a manual that, that gave a vision for milita military endeavor that was dedicated to the healing and the preservation of the integrity of life support systems of the planet. So that wherever there would be out um, environmental disasters or social unrest or whatever the, the first earth um, battalion warriors would show up kind of the warrior monk at archetype you know with, with mm. the kind of ethics and integrity of monks and yeah, the Shamba, shambhala yeah like the shambhala warrior kind of archetype mm. that they'd show up and they would go into the midst of the uh, conflict or the devastation and build harmony and peace and integrity back into the fabric of society and and community mm. and that and the mission for our consulting firm basically was to take the vision and the ethos and the values of evolutionary tactics and the principles and practices from Vipassana and Bodhisattva warrior training and Aikido and all things kind of neuro techie and bring that into equipping people and organizations with the skills that they needed to bring a deeper kind of wisdom and compassion and creativity to their work to build a better world. And we were like enormously successful with that. So through the work um, with um, Jim Channon and through his work at Delta Force, we connected with uh, two senior military leaders at the Pentagon 
who lived with this just tremendous sense of guilt and shame and grief and sadness and motivation to change circumstances. Because there were these indications that, that there were between three to 20 times more people dying when they came back from being in combat than died in combat. Wow. So you can imagine standing in front of, yeah, you can imagine standing in front of like the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. and having it either be uh, four times bigger yeah. or, or 23 times bigger. Wow. With the number of people who one way or another compromise the integrity of their life um, to a point where they suffer and die as a result of having been a victim of war. Mm. And that kind of, you know, in those days, there wasn't a whole lot of research on moral injury like there is now, you know, to just see how, how tremendously devastated people are by the trauma, the neurological, the psychophysical, the psychospiritual mm. trauma of harming other beings. Um, and the kinds of massive ways that we try and keep ourselves from those positions but when we find ourselves in those positions and we engage in those kinds of activities um you know just the devastating impact on the on the military personnel themselves and then rippling out through social contagion mm. and influence into their field of influence and into their families and into their society mm. so you know it was through that impulse of god we've got to find a better way we've got to find a wiser kinder more sensible way we were invited to develop a secret program called jedi warrior or the ultimate warrior training program to equip basically two seal team six kind of caliber teams of special forces to, uh, um, men um, to train them as trainers to then take that wisdom and diffuse it throughout the military. Hmm. And it was a super secret program at that point. Um, we had we had 25 guys full time for six months. Um, we had a lab with $250,000 worth of neurohacking, biohacking, you know, it's just if you could measure it, you could control it kind of technology. I mean, it was just, we took them on a month long silent encampment, i.e. my intensive mindfulness, Vipassana style wow. retreat, a month long. Oh my God. And then they came out of these exercises and they totally aced these mission simulations that no soldiers had ever, teams of soldiers had ever done. Uh, one of the teams was recognized as the most outstanding team in the NATO games that year. Huh. But I think most significantly, the, their kids and spouses and significant others were coming to us and saying, thank you. Thank you for busting this guy open so that he, he he is finding his heart thank you that that he's just able to manage his energy and emotions in a way that he doesn't come home and just whack everybody um yeah thank you for you know the gift of just helping my partner my father um become more human mm. yeah that's that's so beautiful and i think as a society we're almost we're almost not equipped to process trauma we're not really shown how to and what i find so interesting is 
how you're able to frame some of these um, kind of Buddhist and Bodhisattva wisdom in a way that it appeals and it lands with, you know, some of the most, I imagine, like macho men working in, in the military, in the army, who would be very, they'd almost equate vulnerability with, with weakness, I would imagine. And the way that you're able to take these ideas, which I imagine they'd be quite resistant to intellectually, but actually train them and give them the skills is, is so fascinating. And I'd like, yeah, how do you, how, how did you go about from the time when you were kind of introduced to them? And I imagine, I would imagine they would have been quite skeptical at times. Like, what did that conversation look like? How did you begin to open them up going from these very kind of tense um, military personnel to becoming more open and to kind of becoming these like um, <coughs> Shambhala warriors to some extent? Yeah. There's a great quote from Lao Tzu where he says, the man of outer courage dares to die. A man of inner courage dares to live. And, you know, interesting story. You know, we had about two and a half years before the program launched where, you know, we knew the contract was coming. It was just taking a long time to work it out. And we basically had a charter to go out and talk to all of our mentors and anybody else that may be of interest and say, if you had an opportunity to train 25 men who might start or stop the next world war and you had their attention for six months full time, what would you teach them? It's a good question. <laughs> yeah, which was kind of cool because yeah. we, you know, needless to say, if we knocked on somebody's door and they didn't know us and we had a question like that, we got their, attention. their attention. So we yeah. met a lot yeah. of amazing people. But, yeah. you know, we interacted with people from the Dalai Lama and Ram Dass to all these amazing martial artists. Do you remember what they said? What was the Dalai Lama's advice? What yeah, Dalai Lama's advice was basically if you have the opportunity to work with people with tremendous amounts of power, who lack the wisdom and the compassion to use that power wisely. And if there's anything you can do to move them toward the capacity to use that power with greater wisdom and compassion, take on the project. Because hmm. there's a place in us initially that was going, whoa, I'm not sure we want to do that. <laughs> Yeah, it's intimidating. <clears throat> but across the board, um, our mentors were like, absolutely, and you've got our full support. But one one person in particular who we uh, we talked to, um, his name was Zong Rinpoche. And he was abbot of the largest monastic, monastic university in Tibet, a man of just enormous stature. And he was a very, very close teacher of ours and, and just a powerful, powerful presence that many people are a little bit intimidated by but with us we just had this just tender kind of spiritual grandfatherly kind of relationship and we went to Zong Rinpoche at one point and said we've got this opportunity and we've got you know, these are men in a, a position that you know could have critical influence on quality of life on the planet what's the most important thing to teach them and he looked at us and just very, <coughs> very simply said, teach them courage. Hmm. And it's like, right. Joel, <laughs> Joel and Michelle <laughs> Levy teach the special forces courage. You know, it's like, hmm. And that became like this koan for us huh. 
for the next few years. Of, you know, what what did Rinpoche mean by teach them courage? What's this all about? So sure. as we got into it and we were talking to some of our friends that were Tibetan translators, they said, oh, the word, you know, the word ningtope, the word that was probably translated as courage, that could also be translated as compassion. Interesting. It could also be translated as um, patience and non-reactivity. It could also be translated as heart power. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we found, especially as we were approaching the time of this month-long silent encampment, which was this intensive mindfulness retreat that was co-designed with us by um, one of the living treasures of Burma at that point, a man named Tang Polo Sayadan, his disciple, who was a close teacher of ours named Rina Sarkar, who were phenomenal teachers, and they had worked with military people in, in Southeast Asia. Mm teaching mindfulness and meditation. So they said, you know, look, you start out with in this kind of way, and then when you start to see the, the minds kind of ripen in these ways, then shift to these techniques, and then shift to these techniques, and kind of step it into deeper and deeper levels. But as we were approaching the encampment, um, the men were coming to us privately and saying, you know, I I do all of these crazy. I you know jump out of airplanes and free fall to the treetops and open my chute, and it's exhilarating. You know, I do all these you know crazy intense kind of macho army dude kinds of things, and I love it. But this silent retreat, I'm afraid I'm just going to go bonkers on you. Yeah, and they were really really terrified. A lot of these just totally macho i can do anything you know to sit alone with my own mind mm -hmm. for a month are you crazy you know i'm just going to be potentially dangerous so they were really freaking out approaching the retreat and um so there were you know the the wisdom of teach them courage teach them courage to recognize and befriend their inner enemies teach them courage to sit in the fire of their own overwhelm or boredom or, or fear and embrace that mm. rather than identify with that, to go, oh, fear is with me rather than I'm terrified. Mm. Um, and to just give, give these men, you know, the kind of the spaciousness of mind to recognize that the states that they might tend to identify with, be it fear, be it aggression, be it, be it um, sadness or grief or shame, you know, or just clouds floating in the clear sky, the vastness of their true being rather than, than um, forces that define them. Mm. And to give them that kind of inner freedom and inner strength, inner discernment, and capacity to choose how they deploy their precious resources. So although we had asked for 25 volunteers, you know, I kind of thought this would be like teaching at the university where we had 25 people signing up for the class who were enthusiastic and would want to study and read everything and just go for it because they were so turned on. Yeah, It'd be sort of like if you walked into... Um, the laundromat down the street here and the Tesco or something and grab 25 guys and say, you're going to do this program for six months. Mm -hmm. They were all volunteers or all voluntolds. Mm -hmm. 
And they had a choice. I mean, they didn't have to do the program, but if they decided not to go with their teams and do the program, it would destroy their career. <laughs> so we had a real bell curve of engagement. Some people that thought this was the greatest opportunity of their lives and other people going, what is this shit? Yeah, it's just... But what we found is that as the guys got into it, because there was basically no escape. I mean, it was <laughs> six months full time, you know, it's just like, like, um, you know, just the past in the prison. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, you know, after a couple of months, they actually sent a little delegation to us saying, look, you know, some of us just didn't appreciate how profoundly important this kind of training is on the front end. And we just mm. kind of farted around and wasted our time and didn't take it seriously. And we wasted a lot of precious time. Do you think we could extend the program by a couple of months and make up for wow, that? And, and, you know, people, some of the guys were saying, wow, you know, when we first started off, I thought you were talking about metaphors, but you were actually describing the nature of reality. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was just, it, it was sort of like, you know, if you've ever had a batch of popcorn that you just kind of wondered, I wonder if this stuff's ever going to pop, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, gradually pop, 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 boom, you know? Um, <laughs> You know, once they kind of got activated, yeah. they realized just how incredibly fortunate they were. Yeah. And they were coming to us and saying, you know, can we do less of our soldier skills training? We know how to do all that and do more of this mind hacking stuff because yeah. this is just, you know, this is going to save our missions yeah. if we ever go out there. Yeah. And since Jedi, you know, like then going into corporate arenas, and organizational arenas and NGOs and what have you. And people go, yeah, it's a war zone here. You know, it's just mm -hmm. people are getting getting um, bombed every day. There's blood on the floor. You know, we're, we're overwhelmed. It's terrifying circumstances. We need those kinds of skills too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was, it was quite a rite of passage in many ways. I love the way that you, um, or the, the advice of courage, and in my own personal experience, since since we last met, I've I've been through a really intense year, and I've been through two two silent meditation retreats. And the first was a vipassana in January, and at the time I was I was terrified to go in. Like I'd kind of signed up to it before before losing Sophie, my partner, and I kind of signed mm. up out of this point wow. of curiosity and this point of like. I wonder what that would be like. Wow. And then as it got, I'd, I'm almost forgotten that I'd signed up to it. And then as it got closer to the time, I got this reminder. And the idea of going there and sitting in silence on my own for 10 days and just just feeling that was, was terrifying. And I almost didn't go, to be honest. I very nearly kind of backed out. Yeah. And um at some point, I, I think it was kind of three or four days in, I started getting, I started getting really vivid nightmares. Like I was kind of imagining, um, <clears throat> I kind of saw Sophie taking her own life like mm. in these, in these dreams and nightmares. And there was, it was like no one to talk to. And it was so scary. Um, but I think at some point I'd, I'd come in with this intention of, um, 
this idea of radical curiosity so this idea of I guess it's like marrying courage with curiosity it's like having the having the courage to to look at things and feel things that are really painful and I was aware of my own extent of maybe not processing emotions fully kind of in my in my teenage years and in my 20s and this felt like an opportunity to really sink into the grief and to allow myself to not only feel it but eventually be broken by it and be kind of broken open and like yeah I mean it it was almost like I was a little popcorn thing that was just (laughs) exploded (laughs) and it's such a um I almost find it hard to describe words for it but um there's there's a Leonard Cohen quote that's things are broken and that's how the light gets in and that's that's really how it felt it felt like that almost gave way to this this doorway of of tenderness and joy and sadness and and all of these things but it felt like I was I was reconnecting and I was um yeah sinking into it and everything changes when you're in that space and I can only imagine what's you know what some of these military personnel would have gone through as well and how scary it would have been for them to to look at these experiences that they kind of repressed or pushed away and yeah. and I and it I also know that a lot of people go on these big adventures or these big external missions and journeys as almost distractions of like actually looking inwards and feeling the things that they might have experienced in their childhood or when they were when they were younger yeah and it's so so powerful um mm. yeah I just I just have so much so much respect and so much curiosity and where I was where I was going with this was I know that you and Michelle spent a year in silence yourself and that's all I know I, I don't know like why <laughs> did you decide to do that where did that come from you've always you've sounds like you already had this background in you know deep wisdom and deep compassion and you had these teachers why did you feel the the urge to go on this year of silence together and what did that look like yeah so if we can just come back to that sure. and just sure. you know for a moment you know just honor you for the wisdom and the courage and the curiosity to subject yourself to a 10-day silent retreat when you were in just such a vulnerable and cracked open you know heartbroken kind of space you know just whatever the the guidance was that you sourced that says yeah i'm gonna do this even though it, it might be terrifying to go have to sit in the fire like that i just really want to honor your inner wisdom and guidance to do that and i think a lot of people a lot of people are curious about meditation and they kind of flirt with it and and uh, they go oh this will help me deal with my stress or maybe it will just give me a little bit of uh a buzz and brighten my life in some kind of way but they you know if you if they read the small print on the meditation box it says caution requires great courage because <laughs> what happens you know especially if you take on a sitting practice or you you are courageous or naive or bold enough to just you know put yourself into a silent retreat for a half a day or a day or 10 days or my first silent retreat was uh three weeks Mm. um is that um everything within you that needs to be seen will arise and if you've got good mentors if you have a good solid practice 
if you're in a safe and supportive environment, then it's a profound gift to just be able to to compost all that stuff and grow mm. a beautiful garden. Mm. And and through composting that, you know, to just have have the satisfaction that there's a little bit less anxiety or fear or stress in the world. Mm. And that, you know, may my own, you know, healing be, be part of the larger healing in the larger body of life. Mm. And uh but you know, there are many people that got into meditation practice and bought their little zafus and their Zen. <laughs> bells and all of the accoutrements and they've all all they've ended up with is just zen decor but they haven't kept a practice going because they just didn't have the courage or the curiosity for it Mm. so we really need good inspiring mentors and access to them Mm. we need circles of friends that encourage and support us we need need a good comprehension of the inner technologies and the contemplative sciences and how the practices work Mm. And that's you know clearly what our lives have been dedicated to. But the mm-hmm. the courage piece is really important to understand. And how can we put in in place in our lives the envelope of support and inspiration that we need to have the courage to really say, bring it on and show me every waveform of of and dimension of my true being that I might open my heart more deeply to myself and through having the courage to open my heart to my own brilliance and my own challenges, you know, may I open my heart to all vulnerable and frail and and perfect and imperfect beings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So back to the year long um, retreat. Um, Michelle and I, when we get, when we first got together, we sat a um, um, a month long retreat at our home, just as in kind of when cel- you first got together, <laughs> yeah, in, in celebration of you know uh, this is what our lives all about, you know, let's just take off a month from work and and really devote ourselves to our primary operating system, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you know, our our whole life together has been about trying to fathom the depths of who we truly are. And to help others to do the same. So that's that's you know what we've been doing for the last thirty six years. Yeah, it's, it's rather phenomenal. So we've we've both done you know month long and three week long and three month long retreats. You know a lot of shorter retreats. But then we had the opportunity to um, sit a year long retreat. Um, it was the first Shamatha project retreat, you know, kind of in collaboration with Alan Wallace and Genom Rinpa and the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama was the sponsor for this in many ways. And he asked Genom Rinpa, who was a Tibetan mountain yogi, who had spent 17 years in retreat in the Himalayas above Dharamsala. Uh, His Holiness asked Genla to come out of his retreat, come to the West and guide a group of us in a year long retreat. And Genlam Rinpa came, spent nine months with us before the retreat, just kind of training us up and helping us get technical understanding and also offering those teachings to the larger community. And then um, about 12 or 15 of us went into the year-long retreat. Whereabouts was this space? It's a little retreat center called Cloud Mountain that was about midway between Seattle and Portland. Mm -hmm. Beautiful view, looking out at you know, Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, mm. and, and just 
you know, we could have been on the moon for the kind of isolation we had. You know, it was just off the grid, you know, no power, no electricity. I mean, just really, you know, very shanty kind of quiet forest monastery sort of vibe. But I think the best way to comprehend, like, why would you ever want to do something like this is, you know, if you were to, to envision, you know, if you were a musician, if you had an opportunity to devote a year to really getting to know your instrument well and to fathom the depths of what music is and can be and your capacity to bring forth music into the world that would inspire everybody else to want to learn how to play their instrument and play beautiful music so that they could inspire everyone who heard them play to, to be curious enough and passionate about trying to fathom the nature, true nature of their own instrument and how to play music that inspires others to get excited about fathoming the depths of their music ad infinitum. Yeah, we went into this retreat in order to get to know our instrument, to get to know the, the kind of the music of the spheres of our own omnidimensionality and to be able to come back out into the world and to teach and to share and to walk down the street in a way that might ennoble and benefit all beings. And so, you know, it's just, it was a very small investment at, at that level, you know, to, to dedicate ourselves to the austerity of that and the kind of intensity of that sort of training in that way. And this uniquely was not a group, group retreat in the, there was after the first 10 days at the retreat center, there was no group practice. It was all solitary. Wow. So for the, for the full year, for, for, for the full years, <laughs> I mean, it was like really hardcore. Everybody was wow. in there like three meter by three meter room. <coughs> wow. And food was put out three days, three times a day. <laughs> I and, did you not could, know that. and you could go you know, down with your little begging bowl. And if you wanted to be, you know, like sharing breath with other warm, fuzzy yogis, you, you could sit in the dining hall and eat and eat silently, but a lot of us would just go down at odd times and collect our food and go back to our... So that was 355 days in yeah. a year, you were pretty yeah. much solitary. And it was, wow. it was fascinating. At the end of the retreat, we did a little survey and everybody said it was the quickest year of their life. <laughs> it wasn't like you'd be sitting there going, oh, damn, it's only day 40 now. And it's like, it's going, so, you know, it's like, like, you know, we saw four seasons come and go, and mm. it was just amazing. Mm. It was very, and we had access to the teacher. Okay. So we could go talk to him at any time. Okay. And say, you know, check our maps, make sure we were on the right path. Right. What have you. What did some of the transitions look like? Because I remember for myself, on around like day, day six or day seven, I started to, um, the monkey mind kind of, turned itself down a little bit and I started yeah. almost treating everything that I did as almost like a Japanese tea ceremony so I yes. tried to like open Sweet. the door with like my full attention and take yes. every step Beautiful. and every every mouthful food became this like exquisite experience where you'd notice the, the texture and the taste yeah. and the the flavors that previously I'd almost created this unnecessary rush to get from everywhere and then when you're in this place that there's nowhere to get to you can't be productive yes and letting go of that was that was a big transition for me and towards the end i was like i was almost like i wonder what another another 10 days of this would look like in this state yeah so did you find that you 
you opened yourself into something like that yeah. fairly early on and then yeah. like what happens after that like imagine diving in and not having to come up for air for a year sure yeah you know and yeah. just to go deeper and deeper and deeper yeah uh, to me you know some of the thresholds were you know getting to a point where where in a sense, you know, if you imagined the ocean and, you know, just all the flotsam and jetsam on the surface and all the turbulence on the surface, and then you go in a little deeper and it's quieter and it's calmer. And, mm. and then you go in a little deeper and it's just really calm and very clear and very open. And you get to a certain substrate of the mind where thoughts are just in a sense floating above you. Hmm. And, and then you go deeper and it's like, like thoughts were kind of like rare occurrences mm. and just resting in clear boundless sky like open clear presence and and if a thought would come you would just see it as a thought you know like like a cloud in the sky rather than having it define you mm. and then everything everything had meaning had had uh significance everything you know it's like the deeper the practice would go the synchronicity quotient would just go up and up and up so that the interrelatedness and the kind of profound significance of everything was like crystal clear apparent sure yeah and i mean i, I can only just begin to imagine that but after as you approach the end i remember for myself going from that completely kind of broken open state where the saturation is is turned up on life and then i remember going back into a, a supermarket like the next day and mm -hmm. just being completely completely overwhelmed like my senses were just yeah like everything was kind of on fire and i just wanted to go into a dark room and just like yeah. <laughs> sit there in the corner how did you how did you navigate that transition from a year in that sweet. state into yeah, you know, a number of people from the retreat just went straight out of retreat, back to work, back to school, and they kind of I think that. they got hammered by that. Sure. For Michelle and I, you know, um, basically I had a sabbatical from work. We had the consulting company mm -hmm. then, and, mm -hmm. and we came out of retreat, and you know, it's winter time in Seattle, and it's cold, and we're walking around the city, going, "Why did they cover the earth with all this?" asphalt and the 60 cycle stuff going on and pouring out of the walls is really intense and the friend said hey you want to come just stay on the farm in hawaii and just don't oh. like get your bearings again so we went to hawaii for two months you know, and just oh. let folks know at work we were just going to take another couple right. of months off is that where you found your home because i know you no know that, you was the, that was later okay. um so we just basically went to hawaii and re-socialized again and we were in the kind of in the jungle for a while and just yeah. for michelle and i talking again and just like what who are you now you know what was that all about and the beautiful thing was that for Michelle and I, even though we had separate rooms, it was the most intimate year of our life in many ways. Because, you know, it's like, you know, if, if you're um, Great Britain and I'm Iceland, you know, we might look across the water and kind of go, well, I'm, I'm me and you're you and we're separate. You know, but if we drop in deep enough, we kind of go, we share a common substrate. You know, there's, there's a there's a deep bond between us at which you know we're both rising out of that ground of being mm. 
for Michelle and I, having a deep bond of love and a, a deep sense of our own dimensionality going into the retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also had a date every day um, where at five o'clock every day, we would just leave the focus on the formal meditation and we would just hold each other in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And we just like soap bubbles merging. Um, so you weren't there physically together? No, we were in our separate rooms. Yeah. And yeah, but at five o'clock every day, we would just m- merge our hearts together mm-hmm. and hold each other in our hearts and infuse each other with our love and our metta and our mm-hmm. loving kindness. And, um, you know, so there's such a deep bond between us that was really nurtured throughout that retreat that when we came out we were just you know it felt like that had been the most intimate year of our lives because we weren't distracting each other with words and touch and kind of superficialities we were Hmm. just really getting um fused at the deepest level of our being so coming out of the retreat we went to hawaii for a couple months just to rediscover ourselves and our voices again and then then you know interacting with community and being in nature and that was really wise to kind of like be in a supernatural environment and just at a slow pace and to just kind of like surface gradually so we wouldn't get the psychic bends <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. and to integrate and that really helped with the carry of the room anyways mm. almost like learning how to be human again <laughs> yeah but then going back into the world and back into work, you know, yeah. there was just such a deep calm and a deep sense of like attunement to what was going on. Sure. And then a profoundly, you know, intuitive um, sense of responsiveness sure. to what was going on and just what was needed and just able to ask the right questions and yeah. just be so tuned in. I, I love profound. I love the image that you mentioned when you you're kind of setting the intention of um almost tuning yourself up like an instrument and something that i've been thinking about is this idea Mm -hmm. of almost letting the the source or letting the universe kind of flow through you and if you can tune yourself up to a certain degree it's almost it's not you doing the work it's not you saying the words it's almost kind of coming through you if you can get out of your own way to some extent and um teaching other people how to tune up their own instruments and tune up themselves is such a such a powerful gift um and i think the science around all of this you know i was doing um doing research and comparative mysticism back in the early 70s and just you know what happened to people when they have these like experiences of universal proportion and vast selflessness and all that we've got the science around that you know so dialed in now where where you know there's the what was called the default mechanism in the brain that is like this hamster cage of, of narrative and dialogue and so you know like einstein called it the optical delusion of our separate selves mm-hmm. you know it's just total delusion that is just this narrative going round and round and you know if you look at the impact of um contemplative practices and if you look at the impact of a lot of entheogenic mm-hmm. um sacraments um those practices and those substances really quiet the activity and the default mechanism network and leave us in the state of clear, lucid, awake, boundless, selfless, responsive, compassionate presence. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you know, when we're able to find the methodologies and the ways 
to build more neural integrity and have greater mastery, then we start to realize that we can be profoundly highly functional and profoundly helpful and responsive and moving through the world and doing our work and sourcing these profound dimensions of intuitive wisdom and creative intelligence. The world so desperately needs at this time by becoming ever more transparent and selfless. And I think, you know, in these VUCA times, in these times of just overwhelming volatility and uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity, mm -hmm. where there are so many problems and there are so many, um, how to say, misinformed and less than totally wise responses to the complexity of these times that create more unintended consequences and more, more problems, mm -hmm. that in a sense, the actual salvation of humanity depends on us becoming more contemplatively savvy and wise and as individuals and collectives and R&D teams and groups of activists learning how to quiet our minds and still the sense of the illusion of our separateness and source a kind of wisdom and guidance from a deeper substrate of intuitive wisdom and intelligence that is coming out of a sense of profound, intimate connectedness with reality, mm -hmm. and therefore is allowing us to be more in harmony and in balance and, and effective and skillful in responding to complex circumstances. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, taken to heart, that's the gift of these times that we might individually and collectively awaken to a de the deeper, more universal um, dimensions of our true being and live in a way that um, is more open to and accessible to. Yeah, I am. Um, I feel that so strongly, and a, a number of my friends, and Sophie included, have been through these kind of fairly intense periods of depression and anxiety and I think it's becoming almost almost commonplace in our culture that <clears throat> something that so many of us experience and for me I feel like the root of this is this feeling of disconnection it's this feeling that we've <clears throat> we're these separate selves and we're we're separate from nature and the environment separate from each other and separate from from ourselves and these practices which we can kind of train and open ourselves up to rekindle that sense of connection. Yes. And that sense of vitality as well. And they quiet this default mechanism yeah. at work. Yeah. So, you know, people that are really lost in excessive rumination of anxiety or depression, mm -hmm. the default mechanism is just you know, churning and inflamed. And so whatever methodologies that we might use that can help us just quiet that and just come to find the clarity in the midst of our confusion mm. and the peace in the midst of our turbulence and the, the true heartedness within the closed heartedness. Mm. Um, you know, to, to really realize how profoundly important it is that on a personal and a, on a, a as wide a scale as we can that we encourage people to have the curiosity mm. to inquire into who we really are and the true depths of our beings not just for ourselves you know not just that we might be 
less anxious or less overwhelmed or less distressed or less depressed, but, but in order to understand our confusion and our depression and our stress mm -hmm. and to find ways to liberate ourselves from that in order to be able to help others to liberate themselves from that kind of profound implosion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to really, to, to you know, take to heart kind of this bodhisattva spirit of awakening to our true nature and highest potentials in order to be a inspiration for all beings to awaken to their true nature and highest potentials. And we, oftentimes it's the tragedies in our lives. It's the, uh, mm. it's the limitations and the frustrations and the wounds in our own lives that yeah. can, you know, give us the curiosity and the compassion and the courage yeah. to engage yeah. in that kind of deep inquiry and transformation. Yeah, no, that's certainly been my experience, and it's um, it's almost exactly a year since since Sophie took her own life, and I um, I wrote a, po a poem actually quite fairly recently, um, which is something I've been trying to do since going yeah. on this, this David White retreat, and I'll um, I put it up now because I feel like it's yeah, it's kind of Beautiful. it speaks to well, thinking back on those years we shared. I marvel at how you risked delight amidst the waves of your own anguish. But perhaps your greatest gift was the way in which you taught me how to love, as you did, with every fibre of your being. And now that you're gone, I know what I must do. I must seek out the trees, the flowers and the sea. All those radiantly alive places that you held in your affection. For in their presence... I still feel your spirit dancing. Only now do I understand that your final gift was a beautiful invitation, an invitation to learn to fall in love with the world anew. <sighs> Precious. Yeah, and that's um, that's gen. It's it's how I feel. It's kind of um. It does feel like a gift to some extent, and it's it's weird because you don't want to be. It feels weird to be grateful for something that you would change in an instant if you could, but at the same time, it's it has been that that pain and that that breaking open that has let a lot of the light in. Yeah. Um, I just noticed the time, and I've I'm. It's funny that I had all of these questions that I'd prepared that I was going to ask you, <laughs> and as I almost expected. It just went off on a completely beautiful, amazing tangent. Um, but before we wrap up, I'd love to, I'd love to learn a bit more about the these learning expeditions that you're starting, and also to kind of let our listeners know who I'm sure are also curious about how they can find you online, how they can interact with you, and beautiful. maybe take part in this. Yeah, thank you, Johnny, and thank you for the poem and and just your your courage and your willingness to inspire all of us to embrace the tragedies and the sufferings and the vulnerabilities in our own lives as portals to awaken more fully um, to a deeper wisdom and compassion and activation to be a force for good in the world. So I really honor you for that. With regards to uh, inquiring, being curious about how to inquire more deeply or connect with us, um, we invite uh, you to visit our website, uh, wisdomatwork.com. And on the homepage there, there's a tab for the 
Wisdom at Work uh, European Learning Expedition, which is a wonderful learning format. We've done about three or four of these now. Uh, that brings together a cohort of 12 to maybe 18 people for a learning expedition for a year, year to 15 months, just depending on how we end up fully scheduling it, to study, to practice, to learn, to inspire each other, um, to uh, develop greater capacity in all these kinds of skills and perspectives that we're talking about. Um, to establish um, a deeper connection with uh, transformational methodologies of meditation and mindfulness and compassion to uh, study and read uh, some profoundly inspiring books to explore deeply how our personal transformation can be in service of a larger mm. social transformation. Mm. So. Uh, we'll be launching the next expedition in February, mm -hmm. late February. February so, 2019. Yeah. So if anybody is interested, please go to wisdomatwork.com, uh, check out the link uh, on the homepage to the learning expedition and reach out to us and explore the possibilities. Mm. And it's, it's a combination of, of online and offline learning and community. Yeah, we'll have five um, actual face-to-face -face meetups mm -hmm. for about three or four days each. And then we'll also have um, monthly uh, online uh, meetups and explorations and and uh, and people will be working in small clusters and, and with learning buddies as well. So it's a rich mix. Um, it's mm. been a wonderful vehicle for people to engage in intensive and meaningful personal awakening and transformation. It sounds amazing, and I think that kind of sustained engagement is so is so powerful. I mean, you can kind of get a lot from a single retreat or a weekend or a week here or there, but doing something for 12 to 18 months, that sounds profoundly transformative. Yeah, and part of the vision with this is hooking up people in different regions of the world that we've worked with, you know, who have involved, been involved in this kind of deep work with mm -hmm. us. Um, the vision is to continue to build the momentum of these and mix it up, you know, mm -hmm. across the regions as well. So It sounds, it sounds amazing. And at our website, you'll also find links for our various books and mm -hmm. articles and guided meditations and things like that. So. Perfect. So, um, just to, just to close, uh, this is there's a quote that I I always like to close these conversations with, and it's from Rilke, and the quote is: "Be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms, and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue." Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So with that in mind, what question questions do you feel like you're living yourself now? And what question would you like to leave our listeners with? The question that comes to mind is, who are we in our wholeness and our completeness? And what are the full and true dimensions of ourselves that we share with all things and all beings? And how can our personal awakening be dedicated to activating and supporting and inspiring the awakening of all beings? Beautiful. Thank you so much, Joe. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Johnny really a joy and an inspiration to be with you. <laughs> this episode's question for you to ponder is this. 
how could you bring more mindful moments into your daily routine? Share any thoughts on Twitter or Instagram, tagging hash Curious Humans Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life. All right. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of what to expect in the next episode. You know, homo sapiens are born to be social. So when you make people connect with each other and are in a social environment, that's how we were designed to function. So, yeah, we're just kind of creating that space for that to happen.